Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lease. I'm here with my friend Richard Harris. And today we are talking with Jack Wilson from the greater Boston area, sales leader, mentor, coach, and self-proclaimed guy with Ikigai. Did I pronounce that right, Jack? You, you pretty much nailed it. Yeah, it's, it's Ikigai. And I'm, you Ikigai. know what? I'll talk about it and I'm not even like, I don't know how it's pronounced right, I guess, either. So, <laughs> can, can you tell us what the heck it means? Yeah. So a quick story to kind of set it up. I went to an IT conference, which although I'm in that industry, I'm not an IT guy and, you know, went to an IT conference to just learn it and, and figure it all out. And one of the keynote speakers brought up this principle called Ikigai and it's about your, it roughly translates to your reason for being or your purpose. And the way it sets up is really like four circles. It's like picture a big Venn diagram and the four components are, what are you good at? what can you be paid for? What does the world need? And what do you love? And in addition to understanding kind of where you are in each of those four quadrants, there's different emotional states that are aligned with where you happen to be at any one given time. And like when you first see it, you're like, wow, yeah, I felt that way when I was there. And so I dove deep. It like struck me and I dove deep and look into it. And, and I started talking about it and lecturing on it and trying to kind of just spread the word on you can't find your purpose just by like close your eyes and think about what you love. Like that's just fluff. And like, it's not a framework for you to actually establish it. And, and the principle of Ikigai kind of gives you a path to explore how close am I? Where can I improve? What do I need to change? How am I far away from what drives me? Um, and gives you that path to walk down to, to find your purpose. That's great. That's good. That's good stuff. How do you how, just, just out of curiosity, let's, let's for a couple of minutes, you know, Let's say someone's like, oh, that seems interesting, right? So you have four, four circles, right? And I assume there's an overlap of all four, it's yep. sort of in the middle, right? Yep. Um, is there a, a, if someone's really trying to figure this out for themselves, right? Um, one, what's a resource you tell them to go to, or do you have it on your website? Um, or, and two, where do you start? Do you start with what you love? Do you start with what you get paid for? Or does it not really matter? You just start. So it's funny. I, I think uh, a couple things there. You can Google it and the principle is like readily findable, but it, like, it doesn't actually pertain to business in your career as much as just kind of like in your life. Uh, so one of the things I've been trying to do is, is sort of be an evangelist for the sales community to finding your purpose, because we're in one of those few careers where if you don't have that aligned, the, you know, how many times you lose every day, how many times you get to know every day, it, it can crush you. So understanding those those kind of areas of your life as it pertains to your career, I think is important where to start. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Where to start. Yeah. Well, so where to start almost comes naturally to you because as you start to look at those different categories, you know, you say, okay, what am I good at? And I think a lot of people just naturally like, Oh, I'm good at, you know, I'm good at sales. Like I could sell ice to an Eskimo. Well, really? So go deeper. Like, what does it mean to be good at sales? Like, can you define the different areas within it and can you self-evaluate or can you get help from a mentor to help evaluate you? And like really define, okay, am I good? You know, what, what did I think I was good at versus where I am in reality? And then you can kind of just go from there. You know, what can I be paid for? That's like a loaded question. I, I struggle with it sometimes. You know, I, I went to the Sales Success Summit with Scott Ingram and, and the group of people he brought together. And you start to hear about these sales professionals like pulling down six and seven figures. And I'm like, am I missing the, the boat here? Like, should I be doing something else? Like I had a little FOMO about that. So like, 
what can you be paid for? How much can you be paid? Why? What's the value of money to you? Is it the money or is it the lifestyle? Like, I mean, there's rabbit holes after rabbit holes. What the world, what does the world need? You know, how do you look at that? Is it, uh, is it demand? Is it, do I work for a company that that product is a natural fit for the market and it's on fire right now and it's easy, an easy sell? Or am I someone that needs some purpose behind my product? You know, I think like the millennial generation more than ever, they have to have some sort of like business, business ethic rather behind what they do and what they sell. So how do you define what the world needs? And then like the, what do you love and the passion part of it? For me, it's what do you wake up for to do every day without being told to do it? You know, what's the thing that's going to drive patterns of behavior without being forced to do it? What just comes naturally to you? What are you drawn to? And to evaluate that, it takes some, some reflection. It takes taking time away from the process. In a sales career, that's probably the hardest thing to do. You've got to pause. You've got to evaluate and reflect and then make change. Um, so it's so, a lot. So, so you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned like these people who are making six and second, seven figures and like wondering if you're missing out. Did you, did you learn anything there? Like what are those people doing that you weren't doing at the time or maybe you're not doing now or what things um, maybe they have sacrificed to get there and, and where that, where you kind of land on that um, spectrum? Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, the more, the more I dive into that, I, I've always been driven by kind of this, I, I want to change my station in life. That's always been one of my driving factors. And I've always done that. I've always gone ahead and ahead and ahead. It's funny. Like you watch, you watch like TV shows and like, they, they talk about guys coming out of prison. They're like, I ain't going back. Like, that's how I look at like my past life. Like I'm, I'm never going back to that. Like it's always forward. It's always ahead. So what do you but, do? To, what, what do you do to challenge yourself to push forward? Cause sometimes no matter how good we are, we all have our moments of complacency or that FOMO that you're talking about or, or what do you do to push yourself? Yeah. I, so I, that's one of my kind of inherent qualities. I think to just, I have that, that fire, that, I have to, I just, there is no choice for me. I have to always go forward. Um, and also for me, you know, I, I, I struggle with imposter syndrome, like a ton, you know, I, I fancy myself a, a CRO, like I'm a baby CRO in this small company, but then I meet people who are actual CROs and I'm like, yeah, I, I don't have those skills. I don't know if I could do that. Like, well, if I got dropped in that role, would I be good enough? And then I just set about like proving it. Like, I'll but how do you, you do that? Like, what do you do? Do you, how do you check yourself? How do you go? Like, do you literally go, wait a minute. I just saw what he or she said and wow, they're really smart, but I could do that. And then do you sort of make a note, a mental note, a physical note? Like, how do you, like, I'm trying to give people like this ability to listen to this yeah. and kind of go, Oh, yeah. here's a tactic I could actually implement. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I do some journaling. So I, I basically keep, you know, a nice little moleskin notebook that it's not for, writing down anything else other than self-reflective moments. And, you know, throughout the day, if something like that happens, like, Hey, this guy said this technique, like, I want to look into that. I'm going to write that down. And then on Friday, I'll take 15 minutes to a half an hour and I'll go back through the whole week and I'll do a, I'll do like, I'll circle the ideas I want to implement right away. I'll underline sort of like the long-term ideas that I'll kick off to the next week. And then some of them I'll just put a line through, you know, I don't want to erase it. I want to make sure I can go back and visit it, but I'm going to put a line through that because I'm not just, I'm just not going to address that. And then Monday before I kick my day off the things I circled, okay, what are the specific activities I can do this week to either test that method or to start putting that into practice? 
And honestly, sometimes it's even schedule those things, you know, to do or try those things. So a great example, I, I sell to SMBs and we're full field sales reps. So it's not a SaaS product. And sometimes I get like a little jealous. Like I almost think like, man, selling SaaS must be easy because the world is your oyster and you've got all these tools. So I'm trying to bring outreach to our small company. So I've heard it a thousand times on different podcasts. I've heard how powerful it can be. So it was like, you know what? It's time. Circled. Start to get the demo. Start to look into it. Start to see if it can fit our model and implement that and, and just make a change and just go after it. So back, back to my uh, earlier question, though. Like, what did you learn from these people that were making six and seven yeah. figures, right? Like, what... What what are they doing that you presumably you know are not or or unwilling to to do? I mean, it's such a huge leap. I think I think most people look at six figures as like you know the first kind of threshold of where you got to get to if you're a sales professional, but then it just disappears. The financial goal just like seems to dissipate. Right. And there's and there's a lot less people talking about like, well, how do you go from low six figures to making seven figures? And yeah. that that's that's like such a huge milestone. So I'm curious what you learn um, from some of those conversations that you said you were having. Well, quite honestly, I learned I actually don't need that. Uh, you know, yeah. so I I've figured out what's of value to me the most. And really what to answer your, your question there is. I'm doing all the same things and I'm doing all the right things. It's where you apply yourself and where you want to do that. So with my company now, you know, we, we look at the ability that we have to grow and scale something that actually hasn't been done before, which in today's age, if you're not developing software, it's kind of tough to come up with like that new thing. And I, I'm looking at the opportunity now where I, I have the path to do that. And I love applying my skill set in that small company to grow that company, to change that station, to change the lives of the people involved with that versus like, you know, go work for a, a giant SaaS company that, and you just plug in and your employee number X. The reason I, I, I figured out that I don't want that though, is I looked at the lifestyle of some of the people that are in those roles. And, you know, I, in, in the green room, if you will, I told you, um, I ended up on a, a podcast with Scott Ingram because they were talking to, uh, he was on John Barrow's make it happen Mondays. And they were saying, if you don't work more than 45 hours a week and you're successful, I want to hear from you because you don't exist. And at the time I was the number one banker at citizens bank. And I worked like 10 to two every day. And Mondays I took a, an admin day. Um, and I went to the, the trip, the, the company trip. And I remember looking around me at all the guys that were always ranked in the top and, they're still on their phone down in Orlando, no date. You know, they didn't bring a family member. It was a plus one. I'm sitting with my wife, enjoying my time thinking, I never want to be that guy. Yeah. I'm here. I'm ranked just as high. I'm doing actually better than most of these guys, but I'm enjoying my quality of life and I'm still able to up level and I'm still able to give a little bit more if I want to take it to another level and I'm still making as much money. And so the more I start to look at the lifestyle of that, you know, what's, what's the balance between my, my mental health, my happiness, you know, how I present myself in my personal life with my family. Um, and then, you know, my profession all in taking a look at that big picture. I, I feel like I can now level set. I don't need seven figures to do it. I need enough and I always want more, but don't let that drive for more be out of something materialistic. So what, what, what drove you to leave the banking industry, right? seems like you were doing really well. You had a, you know, what I would call like a pretty cush gig, 10 to two. I think most of us would be pretty jealous of that. Um, 
but now, but now you've, you've left that and, and you're, you know, we were talking offline, like you're trying to build something, you know, from the ground up kind of, um, what, what, what spawned that shift and that change for you? Yeah. I, so I am honestly like one of the, the most fortuitous guys in sales. You know, I listen to all these people on podcasts, talk about how they, you know, they hit rock bottom. They've been, you know, fired from a job and they had to like recoup. And for me, I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world because when I got into sales, I immediately was successful. I made the trip. I took the promotion. I did it again. I took the promotion. Uh, it got me a new job. I did it again, took the promotion. So banking for me was like the third stop of, okay, I continually climb the ladder and I achieve at the highest ranks. Am I a fraud? Like, am I a flash in the pan? And am I just achieving and then taking opportunity and running before I have to prove that I can do it consistently? So at the bank, I actually decided, I made a conscious decision, I'm not leaving until I do it again. And the, the year, the first year I was ranked at the top, I actually finished the year in fourth and I came out the next year ranked first and I never looked back. And actually uh, I left at the end of that year. I didn't even work the fourth quarter and I still would have finished third, even though I hadn't worked an entire quarter. So to me, I could say, okay, I, it wasn't just a flash in a pan. I wasn't just lucky. I know I can prove it. I know I can do it sustainably. So how I ended up with my company is actually a, a really you know, just a confluence of positive events. I, way back uh, when my career started, I opened a coffee shop with a partner. Um, I was in business school and I was like, I get it. I want to be in business. I'm going to live the American dream. We're going to open a coffee shop. We'll pay each other 40 grand a year and we'll be happy forever. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? like, you're, like the, you're like the Tom Cruise of coffee shops, right? Yeah, right. Cocktail. And, and like, like sooner or later, you ended up like a glorified barista. And I was like, this is right. not what this was supposed to be. And I would actually watch a sales rep from Paychex. She did B2B, you know, payroll. She would come into my coffee shop every day. And I'm like, that's cool. Like, she's always here. She's hanging out at a coffee shop, buying lunch for clients. I'm like, that sounds like a fun gig. So I started talking to her about it. And she's like, I'm in sales. And this is what it's all about. So I literally walked into the office of Paychex. I'm like khaki cargo shorts. Right. And like interviewed. The guy gave me the job. I remember he even said to me, he's like, you know, next time maybe like you put a suit on. And I was like, dude, I like run a coffee shop. What do you want from me? I have to go back for the lunch shift. <laughs> so I left, got into sales, like <laughs> did all that. And, um, but ever, did ever since. Did you ever ask him like later, you know, have you ever said, Hey, like I came in in freaking cargo shorts from a coffee shop. What about me made you want to hire me? Cause like, you know, traditionally that, that stuff doesn't fly at a company. Right. Did you ever, right. I'm just curious. Did he ever say like, here's what I saw in you or anything like that? You know, we, we've never had that conversation and, and we're still like, we're still pretty good. I'd be, you know, I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what he thinks. You, you should go ask him that question. I think it'd be oh, a well, fun. I'm, I'm going to call him right now. Let's get him hey. on that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, honestly, I am. Um, he, you know, it, it payroll, payroll sales, like they take people off the streets and they have such a good training module that as long as you have like do. a higher, you know, it's the whole, the hire for attitude, train for skills thing. So I'm sure right. you saw that I was just eager and ready and had the fire and, and you guys know, finding that that i call it the fire but that sense of urgency the desire you can't ask a magic question to get to that and and identifying who has that and how is like one of the hardest parts and in finding the right actually, i actually i actually think you can there's a magic there's a magic question that i used to ask salespeople when i would interview them which is uh do you eat fast or slow uh, and traditionally and i and i do this at every training like i just did it 
the last two days I was, I was doing a training and, you know, and I always say, look, the, the room's going to raise at a 60 to 70% level. You're going to raise your hands. How many of you eat fast or have been told you eat fast and everybody raises their hands. That's urgency. You yeah, can't teach true. that. Right. Like, right. Scott knows my kids, you know, Bodie is constantly eating fast too because he wants to go do the next thing, which is usually his iPad. But Riley's just sort of enjoying his steak dinner, right? I don't know. Are Caleb and Braden that way, Scott? Do you notice that if you've now that I've they, said it? They get distracted by everything. It's just like constant squirrel moment right. then. <laughs> forever, forever to eat. So I, I probably could eat three meals by the time they're done with one. Exactly. Right. Like there I don't have time for food. Food gets in my way. It stops me from my process. Like that's like the that's the one best question I've used to figure out if someone's naturally urgent. That doesn't mean that I don't hire non-urgent people because non-urgent people are process oriented and they can actually follow a program a little bit. And there's a value to that too. Right. So you kind of yeah. have to balance that out. Um, Not to divert too far from the topic, but like, I, I agree with that. So when I first started scaling the sales team at, at Cinch IT, my first hire was like a high I, like if you did like the disc profile yeah. Myers Briggs and everyone's like, you got to hire the, the, the high D the dominant D. drivers. Uh, but you know, in, for me, it's like it, it's a lot of scary, like, you know, you're going to get hacked, you're going to get breached. You need someone who can deliver that message without it seeming like a scare tactic. So I went for it and I hired a high I and definitely my, my next salesperson was a high D and like, they're very different and the drive is very different, but the results were the same. How did you, um, how did you motivate an I versus a D just out of, I think people would love to hear that. Well, so you, my approach to motivation is, you know, you can't have a blanket style of, of motivation and a blanket style to coaching and management. You have to have individualistic management styles and you have to dig into the individual and figure out what drives them. And honestly, it's using the Ikigai principle and trying to apply it to them and find out, you know, what areas do they excel in? What are they good at? What do they think the world needs? Where's their passion? And, and lining up our company goals with their individual goals you know, we're never talking quota. We're never talking my goals because theirs are always going to be ahead. And if I'm helping them achieve what they want and it happens to line up with what we need as a company, that's when you win. That's when everyone wins. So making sure to sit down with the individual and find out what they're trying to gain from it, what they're, what makes them feel positive about the job they're delivering every day and, and just honing in on those things consistently um, is the best way I think to motivate somebody like that. What are, what do you think are some of the unique challenges when you're selling into to IT and, and give us your your top one or two ways to overcome them. Sure. So actually, it's, it's funny. I think the unique challenges are you would think everyone has an understanding of like the threats that exist and the need for it because it's buzzworthy. But as buzzworthy as all of the things that we talk about are like ransomware and cyber attacks and all that, it, the adoption rate is, is very low because the awareness rate is actually very low. If you look at like the average owner of an SMB and you do like a profile of who they are, um, they're not necessarily in tuned to technology and what's going on there. They've got the nose down focused. Definitely in not in tune to it. No, they're a manufacturer. They're worried about, you know, like going lean and like productivity rates and things like that. And like they could care less about it until it doesn't work. So we are entering into that buyer life cycle. And we're just saying, okay, wherever you are, we need to bring you here. Um, I think that's the biggest challenge is we're just, I hate the word because it's so like cliche now, but like we're a disruptor industry at its core. We have to go in and disrupt and disrupt and disrupt and then finally make people comfortable with it. And then, you know, so what, what, so give us, give us like your top tip for, um, 
you know, making people comfortable with a massive disruption to their business and their, and their process. So I just stopped talking about technology. And you know, if the more you and listen start to talk, start talking about what start talking about your customer, start talking about the industry and research the hell out of that industry. And, and this isn't a new practice in sales. If you know your customer, you know, their industry cold and you are an industry expert. You don't just say that you are, you don't yeah. fancy yourself a thought leader. If you understand when you walk in the, the language they speak in, the challenges that they face every single day, what actually matters to them. And then you go in and you talk about that and then apply what you do to it. Okay. Now you're in. So for example, I was in, I was in banking and somehow I got into the, the plastics industry. I just had a bunch of customers in plastics and I started to understand like the, the second, the aftermarket plastics industry, it's like, it's like horse trading. You know, they, they get a phone call. They're like, Hey, I got this train car full of black 75. You want it? And the guy's like, absolutely. Hold on. Then he calls me the banker. I need a hundred thousand dollars. I got to buy this train car, this rare color. Well now in it, I walk into a plastics manufacturer and I'm like, I'm like, Hey, like, do you guys deal with colors? Like, do you, do you have Pantones that you dye yourself? Or like, how often do you have to buy aftermarket or do you buy virgin raw material? And, and they're like, this guy, he's talking my language. He's in like, sit down, you have a place at the table. And it's not just IT, it's any industry that you sell in. You have to be an expert. You have to understand their language. You have to empathize deeply with not just what they do, but who they are, what their role cares about and all that. It's, it's a, I mean, I say this all the time. It's, it's a lot like dating. Like you can't go out on a first date and talk about yourself. You have to go yeah. out on a first date and, you know, talk about them and then hope they turn around and reciprocate. Right. Like that was sort of always my measure. Um, Scott always had women throwing themselves at him, so he never really. Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> it's the it's the surf bro like awesome personality. Totally, man. Like, totally, man. <laughs> it is. It's it's it's. I think uh, I think who who came up with it? Uh, um, uh, what is it? Chic? What was it, Scott? Oh, hobo chic. Hobo chic. Right? Yeah. Who came up with that? Doug it's Landis. Like, uh, I think. It's like this Zoolander. Guy. Derelict. Yeah, derelict. <laughs> how did you get, how did you get into sales? Let's yeah. talk about. Like where, where, where like a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that question because like the, the coffee shop watching the girl come in was really where I decided I was going to get into sales consciously. But then like the more I look back, like in my life, I was like, man, I, I was always in sales. I, when I like was, uh, I think it was like in middle school. I remember getting one of those little catalogs in the mail that was like, had like the dumbest Christmas stuff, like peanut brittle and like, like chocolates but there was like on the back had all the prizes and it was like, sell this much money, get this thing. And at the time, like I lived like two miles from like a pond and I always wanted to go fishing and I didn't have anything to go fishing. I grew up like, you know, single mom, only child. Like my story's not that rough, but like, you know, I had to, I had to go get mine. So I, I remember looking at this little thing going, I'm going I'm to get this fishing pole and tackle box so I can go fishing whenever the hell I want. And I marched around my neighborhood like door to door and like just slinging peanut brittle and like crushed it and got like the wow. fishing pole, the tackle box, like a bunch of other crap. And I was like, this is cool. I can do this. And what, I, go, go, ahead. go back, go back before that somewhere inside you, you still had this level of motivation and urgency before you just, before you decide to take that skill, that raw talent and put it into this, where did you notice it? You know, if I asked your mom, or I asked your dad, I would like, Hey, you know, what do you know about Jack? Like where, you know, where did you first see this in him? What do you think they would say? 
uh, honestly, it, it's actually not a place of motivation and success. It's running from failure, to be honest with you. And, and I've, I've failed a ton. And I think way back, so like middle school, I would go into middle school and I didn't have lunch money. And like, you know, some kids are walking in with like, you know, these sweet Spider-Man lunchbox with like the Fritos and all this stuff. And like kids are trading their snacks. Well, I would walk into one lunch line in the first half of the week and I would like con the lunch lady. I would be like, Hey, look, I'm paying at the end of the week. Cause you could get these little cards. I was like, I'm paying at the end of the week. I'm paying at the end of the week. And then all week I'd hustle like, Hey man, like, uh, give me a quarter and I'll do whatever. Or, like, give me a, you know, I'll trade you this for whatever. By the end of the week, I had enough to pay for my lunch card and I would go back. I would like give her the thing for the lunch card. And I was like, you were, you, bartering. Go. you were bartering the whole time. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. hustling and it was just like, for me, it was survival. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a, Hey, I can do this. It was like, I have no choice. Like if I want to eat, I got to figure out how to make this thing happen. Um, and like, you know, like I went, I always wanted to prove people wrong. Like I'm, I like, I love being the underdog. I love looking at a group of people being like, nobody thinks I could be like them. Watch, I'll be better or I'll be different. And so like in high school, everyone from my high school went to the same college in Massachusetts. And I went down to Florida state. Um, that was like my dream. I got to Florida state fall flat on my face, just like failed flat out. I 1.16 GPA, like pissed away the whole opportunity, yeah. but met but some great. That seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you have a good time though? Such a good time. Met some yeah. of the best people I you, know. You may- and, you made sure that college didn't get in the way of your education, man. That's all. You high bet. School, right? <laughs> Look, colleges teaches you how to stand in line and, and fill out forms yeah. um, and pay bills later on when you owe debt. But, you know, when I when I got home and I went to, to real college and I figured it out, um, I was like, OK, I have to learn from that. I can't fall on my face. And I actually did it again. I actually ended up withdrawing from a semester at a community college because I was just screwing around. And finally, that click moment happened where I was like, wait. I, I have to survive. I've got to get out of this. I've got to change. And like, and then the whole world changed for me after that. And do you think just out of curiosity, do you think you at that age, and I don't know if you would do it now that you purposely deeply subconsciously failed out of Florida state or out of the community college because you needed a bigger chip on your shoulder to motivate you, man, that's uh that, that could very well be what happened, but if I'm being honest with myself, it's, I think it's out of a total lack of accountability. It was just being water, just taking the path of least resistance, doing what I liked and I wanted uh, because I had earned it. It was almost like that, uh, that entitlement attitude for the first time in my life. Like, that's right. I'm here. I just, I'm going to do what I want. I got here. I earned it. And that kind of attitude in life and sales and anything is when you fail. The second you think you've got it, it's getting away from you. That's, um, that's when the slump starts. Yep. Yep. That's, we yep. all know we start to change oh, yeah. things. We start to take this process that we've been idyllic about. And I learned that, I think I learned this from Scott more than anybody when I was working with him. Um, was that, you know, if you're crushing it, why would you change a thing? And you start to think that you're going to outsmart your process. You're going to cut, you're going to take a shortcut. You're going to cut this part out of your pitch or cut this part out of your life. And you're going to get there faster and it screws you up. So I, I love that. Yeah, and I talk about a, a principle of, I call it minimal viable habits. It's actually what I spoke about at the sales success summit and it's avoiding the roller coaster. You know, if you're putting in high levels of activity and then you you're cashing in on all those opportunities. So you have to like slow down on the prospecting activities. You, you're riding that, that roller coaster. Um, so how do you avoid that? Well, you just do the basic things every single day 
in a controllable amount that are going to cumulatively lead to your success. And look, if you don't win today, if you don't win tomorrow or the next day, it doesn't matter. As long as you know, those are the activities that are going to lead to the wins. Just keep doing those things. And like when you're high, keep doing those things. When you're low, keep doing those things. You know, my sales team today, you know, you've got to celebrate wins, but they come into me and they're like, they're losing their mind excited. I'm like, Hey man, it's just a day. It's just a day. And then the very next day they're getting kicked in the face and they're like down in the mud and they're like, man, this is so rough. I'm like, it's just a day, man. Like every day it's like, you got to go out, do your thing, do the activities you know are going to lead to success and, and moderate yourself because those highs and those lows, you can get addicted to them. You can get afraid of them and it causes you to behave in all sorts of terrible ways that don't help you. Yeah. We, uh, it's funny. We got introduced to each other by somebody that neither one of us have ever met. That's how you ended up on the, on the podcast here. Um, I saw recently that you started doing some partnerships or working with uh, Dale Dupree. We had Dale on the show the other day, um, you know, the sales rebellion. So what's, what's your involvement, um, you know, with, with him and his, and his company? Is that like, yeah, I'd hustle uh, stuff that you're doing or you, I thought you, I thought you were headed over there full time all of a sudden I was thinking, Oh, here we go again. There's another, another super team is starting to form. Well, we are a super team, but you don't like my whole methodology. You don't have to do it full time to be a superhero. So I am a rebel. I'm a, I'm a coach with the sales rebellion and you know, it's great. It's really crazy how I, I actually met Dale. I just was engaging with him on LinkedIn. Like, as you know, um, you know, he's all over LinkedIn. He's got a very specific purpose that, that he embodies. And that message resonated with me. I believe sales is a noble career. I do. And I hate the stereotypes of, of the pushy arm twister, you know, used car salesman. I've always been a relationship-based kind of find that need, fill the need, help people succeed sales guy. And Dale believes in all of that and then some, creating just unique, memorable experiences for both rep and customer. So I had been following him for a long time. And then uh, it's funny, I... I'm like actually an introverted extrovert. Um, you know, I, we went down to the sales summit and everyone said, Hey, let's get an Airbnb. I'm like, Nope, absolutely not. I want my own hotel room. I <laughs> wake up on my own time, shower whenever I want to like, you know, fart if I have to and not be worried about it, you know, whatever. And, uh, they're like, look, you got to do this thing. Like just try it. I'm like, all right, like, let's do it. Get out of the box, get out of that comfort zone. So we go down to this Airbnb and who opens the door but Dale Dupree, like, you know, rebellion hat, like I'm Dale. And I'm like, I know you, man. Wait, I actually have no idea who you are. I just know of you. Yeah. And uh, we kind of hit it off and we really talked about you know, what is a rebellion at its core? What does it mean? Uh, how do we bring it to more people? How do we enlighten more people in the sales career to do it? What we think is the right way to have a positive impact on not just the industry, but everyone you interact with, whether it's colleagues, customers, family even when you when you go home at the end of the day so from there you know a relationship spurred and i joined the rebellion gosh a couple a couple months ago uh, as a coach yeah it's cool how, how do you you said that um you believe sales is a noble career how how far away do you think we are from the general public agreeing with you how well, much define, how define much we because I think everyone on this call, and I think a well, I lot think the, of I'd say the general public. How are you going to convince my parents that <laughs> sales is a, is a noble career? How about that? We'll start there. 
Well, I, I, you know, it all depends on who experienced who in their, in their sales walk, you know? So like it only takes a person having one awful sales experience to think that it's not a noble career. And I mean, look, I take in so much content from people like yourselves, people like Dale, and then all, I get back to the office and I get an inbound email and it's like the worst prospecting email I've ever received. And I'm like, are these people living in a, in a cave? Like, yeah. I'm inundated with all the best of the best sales practices and like, this is what you guys have got to offer me. So yeah, honestly, I think there's like a dichotomy. I think there's like this, this, this half of the world that's like got it figured out and they're going off being out like ultra successful. And there's this other half of the world that's just kind of trying to figure it out. I don't think they're not knowable. I think they're on their way. I think they haven't arrived yeah. yet. I think you know? you're at about a 25 year growth. Like let's face it, you know, Sales has been around since Mesopotamia, right? And there's always been some jerk out there. As you, as you even said earlier, there's, you know, someone who sells ice to Eskimos. Okay, I don't ever want to hire that person because that means they're an asshole, right? Mm -hmm. Eskimos don't need ice. I'd rather sell firewood to the Eskimo, right? But, yep. but I think the, the shift that I see uh, because of the SaaS industry and, uh, and because of the millennial and Gen Z industry is that as those people grow, and as they become leaders and founders and they go from their 20s to their 30s to their 40s and their 50s and they're successful, generationally, it's going to change, right? It's a little bit like generationally how music worked. So are, right? we, are, we, are we one generation away? Are we two generations away then? I don't know if it's by generation, but I think it's, um, I would say 25 years. But yeah. If I had to put a number on it, right? Because all the 20-somethings need to double their life experience. And there's, I think, I, you know, I don't even know. I wonder if there are more salespeople in the world now than there were 15 or 20 years ago because of the SaaS industry. And we all touch somebody and sort of through the octopus principle and people get to know us and know we're not necessarily jerks. That's fine. I also don't think it's ever going to go away. Like I, I think there's, you know, there's always going to be an asshole. There's always going to be a used car salesperson. Although maybe that'll be disrupted in the next 25 years because you're just going to buy your car online. Um, you already, I mean, you already can. Right. Um, so it, it'll be interesting, but I, I don't think it'll ever go away, but I think, I think it will shift and it's just going to take a while. Yeah. Also though, like you're assuming it's going to be on like a steady growth trajectory, but like, just like, like sales in the SaaS industry, all of a sudden you insert a few leaders that have taken a leap and you get a company that believes in that you can have exponential change. So like, you know, it's like Moore's law with technology. Like you can get that hockey stick change in an industry really, really fast. If you get the right people leading the right teams. I also think there's a little bit of public private kind of skew to that data. So like I've worked for private companies, I work for public companies. And like the second you've got to report to the street, your behavior changes. Next thing you know, you're managing the numbers. But like in my company now, I like, I, I have franchise owners. Like we have a, a unique franchise model. They don't actually work for me. So I have to get their buy-in and I have to lead them out of a place of them knowing if they follow the things I'm training them, that they're going to get the results that they want. And I can't hold them accountable to a quota, but yeah. I'm getting better results because I don't care about the number. Like I don't care how much you sell today, do the right things. And when you do the right things, the result is always going to come in line. It's the whole trailing indicators versus leading indicators. 
But I think the public companies, it's, you know, obviously it's harder for them to do that because they've got immediate impact based on what the street says and what investors say and venture capital says. So it's a, it's a, a whole new challenge there. It, it is wild. I mean, I get just like everybody else, I get these connect and pitch messages or terrible, you know, sales pitch messages. Um, I got one earlier this week from somebody at Edward Jones, big financial company. Right. And I, I got this message and I, all I could think of was how the fuck has nobody gone inside Edward Jones and taught all of their salespeople how to use LinkedIn. And it's just like a mind blowing. And you know, there's probably hundreds of fortune 1000 companies who have this same exact problem. And it's hard to blame. And you can't really blame. I think some of the people who are new in the, in the industry and in their career. But I, I put a lot of blame on some of the, you know, senior leadership at those companies for either putting their head in the sand or, or just being blissfully unaware or, or what have you. Um, but it's just I, so such a mind blowing thing. I actually have a friend who works for Edward Jones and I, I shot him a text and I was like, dude, you got to get me inside Edward Jones so I can teach these people how to use LinkedIn. It's like, so here's an interesting thought, Scott, and I don't know if I've done this, and I've only done it once, so it's not a, by any means an exact science. I had somebody did that, right? Connect and pitch. I like that, by the way. Um, is I went back to him and I said, hey, I'm not your ICP. I'm not the right person, but do you mind if I ask? This is like against every principle I know from sales and LinkedIn. Does this actually work? I would turn around and take a couple of them and ask someone, is this working for you? And if so, yeah, how often? I've done that that kind of thing before, especially if I'm feeling grouchy like you are. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to do it from a place of warmth of like, yeah. hey, I don't see this as a best practice, but I am curious. Educate yeah. me. Like, does this work? Because I don't think so it does. So you can do that positively, though, too. And like, think about the impact. So we're talking about shifting an entire industry. Right. If you do that, like, so when you're grouchy about it and you're like, this guy pissed me off because this was awful. Like, if you can pause, which look, you don't have to do it. And like, we've got so much to do that taking that pause, like they need to realize like they've got to earn that pause from me. But if you take that pause and you just deliver like a real quick, like, Hey, look, like recognize the hustle, appreciate the hunt, but try doing this a little bit differently. Cause here's yeah. how it made me feel. I've actually started doing that a couple times and like, I'll have people message me back a week later. Like, Hey man, like that was mind blowing. This is yeah. the impact it's had on me. And for us, because we know the practice is right. It's, it seems simple, but for them, it was like a, a shift, like a mind shift that can change them. And they might never do that awful outreach again. But so. I also want to know if it works. No, they, 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 they'll tell, I mean, I, I've done what Jack just said and I've had those exact kind of moments. I've also been very polite and tried to help people who basically told me to fuck off. And, and, I, and I've also had people say to me, yeah, it works. Of course it, it works. Like this is why we, we do it. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. Okay, it, it works, but that like what percent, right? Like is it working one or two percent of the time? And Jesus, you could be at fifteen percent, you know, if you were doing it the uh the the other way. Um I do yeah. the same thing with people who come knock on my door, by the way. You know, I, I look at people who are selling door to door in, in, in my neighborhood and think this is somebody who, you know, is trying to carve a path for themselves in sales. Um, maybe has taken a really roundabout 
journey even to get to this particular place. And they're so fucking nervous when they, you know, knock on the door. I don't blame them. It's a horrible job. I, I don't, I don't know how they do it. I, I, I could never have survived. So I'm, I'm like really sympathetic when, when I open the door and, and I let people pitch and everything. And I, I, I stand there and listen to their pitch and I try to help them. And I change <laughs> their pitch all the time with them. I'm like, how come you say it like this? It's like, here's a different way to say it and everything. And then, you know, I just had this happen the other day. Like I, you know, wrote some guy, some guy a check for some fucking magazines that I don't need just because I was, I was like, yeah, you're trying, man. Like, take some advice here. I like gave him one of my books and he was like, who's this? I'm like, that's, that's me. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it Don't you know how important I am? I'm Scott fucking lease. <laughs> you I knocked wasn't. on my door, buddy. You yeah. do your homework, get on LinkedIn. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't the full spirit of it, but I was trying to, trying to help him a little bit, you know? Um, but some some people are, are responsive to it, and other people, like I said, they just be like, "Ah, fuck off!" Of course it works, right? So th there's got to be a reason why those people are still doing it that way. They don't know any better. They think their one percent success rate is good, I guess. Well, we're so conditioned to yeah. losing all of the damn time that, like, we get that one win, and we're like, "Cool, I'll go get punched in the face another hundred times until I get the next win." Like that's why I'm a sales guy. I'm resilient as hell. Yeah. And but so getting them to understand that. Like, hey, 4% versus 15%, like, you can do this. It makes a difference. But, like, one thing, uh, I, I want to be a public speaker. I don't think I'm great at it yet. I've only had a couple of opportunities to do it. And the first time I had the chance was at, that, at the sales summit. And someone said to me, they're like, look, you know, don't, don't go out there and try to, like, change the whole crowd or educate the whole crowd because some of them just don't give a shit. But go out there and try to impact one person. I was like, man, like, no, I'm going to do that. I even said it at the beginning of my speech. I said, look, if just one of you here today, this changes something, then I had an impact. And like, sure enough, a ton of people reached out to me saying like, hey, I listened to the Ikigai thing and I'm actually changing careers or I'm doubling down on what I believe in in my career and changing like my philosophies. And so call me altruistic, but if you're, if you're able to impact just one of those salespeople, they become that leader that we're talking about that trains an entire team to do it the right way, to shift the industry, yeah. to make the impact. And, you know, we can have that impact today. The next email that comes in, the next terrible cold call that you get, like we can do that. Yeah. that that's what I'm saying is generational, right? Like this next generation is going to be better coaches to their teams than we are to them because we were shitty coaches to our sales teams. And Gen X was not very good. We at were it. shitty salespeople. Let's right. be honest. Like we've all but done that was, it. But I blame, that, I blame a little bit of that on coaching or the lack of coaching. coaching. <laughs> exactly. Right. And which then means that, that the baby boomers were shitty coaches too. Right. And of course they're probably listening here going, no, I wasn't. I just worked harder than you. Like, Give me a break. Well, you know, what's better is like the, the worst part is like as sales professionals, we have this awesome process. It's like process, process, process. You got to do this. And then we become leaders and they were like, we're just going to wing it. We, we, you know, right. we're just, we're leading, man. We're out here coaching. Like yeah. where's the process? Well, that's, where's the that's, well, that's, that's one of the things that, is the easiest way to set yourself apart as a, as a sales leader and continue to get, you know, VP and CRO roles and be successful with them is, you know, you, you recognize that the same things that made you successful as a sales rep are applicable to being a sales manager, a director, a VP and a CRO um, and not deviating from that process and sticking to it is, is what works. But I think, I think the piece that comes in that makes 
that leader a great leader though is that look we all get promoted from sdr to ae ae to senior mid team manager team leader whatever all that's we often get promoted more often because we're product knowledge experts nowhere and as, as an sdr and ae did anybody ever coach me on how to coach people nobody in my first sales manager job did anybody coach me on how to coach somebody out of a slump Nobody as a VP yeah. of sales ever taught me how to hire and delegate. So there's all these things we, the, the bad people who don't and who can't figure that piece out and be willing to accept that patience that needs to be there for the management side. That's the challenge we have. And we've got to fix that piece, which is one of the things, you know, I really like Jack. Like I, I don't know the Ikigai principle. Like I've never heard of it till you mentioned it, but it, it certainly resonates with me based on how I try to teach some management things and I get it and sort of finding what's important to motivate them. And, you know, based on that, then they'll perform and all that stuff. So it's interesting, you know, the path to leadership often overlooks 50% of what leadership is all about. Yeah. We train the, you know, as a sales professional, we're trained to deliver the answers. So we have to uncover what answers people need. And then like, we're really damn good at delivering that answer statement. And immediately when you become a leader, you want to constantly do that. And it's so detrimental. Like you've got to shut up. You've got to just keep asking questions and like get them to their own answers. So like you automatically have to do something that's kind of contrary to what you've always been trained to do best. So yeah, it's definitely tough. And I think like you go from being a lot of people get promoted from being the top rep thinking, okay, do it like I did and then you'll be successful. And that's another challenge that they have to, to shed. You know, I can't just tell everyone to be like me. I have to find out how they can adopt practices that are going to help them be successful in alignment with their strengths, you know, with their personality and things like that. Well, how can we, uh, how can we help you, Jack? This is the part of the show where we kind of, wind down and wrap things up and we try to, you know, make ourselves available and, and be helpful in any way to you and what you're trying to get done. Honestly, this, just having this conversation is extremely helpful. I, I love talking about sales, helping uplift kind of the, that industry to that noble profession that it is. And just the fact that somebody reached out on LinkedIn and said, you got to talk to this guy. Like I'm so humbled by that. So giving me a platform to kind of share um, and talk about the things I believe in is, is already so helpful. Um, and I think the best way you could be helpful is let's make this a, a lasting relationship. Let's keep in touch. Let's, let's practice what we yeah. believe in and let's kind of make an impact on other people. Go change one person. It, you know, sure. that's what you can really do. Forget me. Don't help me. Just help one person. Uh, and, and that'll do a lot for everybody. Jack, Jack, um, Jack, we'll only stay in touch with you if you promise to come to Surf and Sales in September. Like that's, that's it, ooh, it's in September. Like yeah, I thought, well, I thought I just missed we, it. We, well, we leave, we leave uh, Sunday for for this, this next week. Surf and Sales, but the Surf and Sales Five will be in September in uh, in Mexico. So in Mexico, I'm I mean I've never you touched a practice, surfboard. You can practice you your uh, public speaking too, by the way. Which you yeah, said we'll give we'll give you a slot. Yeah, so. love it, love it. Invited, accepted, like done. Let's do it. <laughs> Hey, All right, man. Hey, Jack, Thanks a lot for spending some time with us. I got, I got one thing, Scott. Um, so, Jack, I know on your LinkedIn profile you talk about mentoring and coaching. Um, if people do want to get in touch with you, and I don't know if you have time for more mentoring or coaching, but maybe you can direct them to other people, is LinkedIn the best way for them to get a hold of you? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I engage pretty regularly on LinkedIn. Uh, you can email me, jack at thesalesrebellion.com. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm usually pretty quick to get responses out and I 
plenty of capacity to, to take on the right people who want to, you know, get some mentoring and coaching and, and just take the next level in their sales career. Cool, man. Awesome, Jack. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys. This has been a blast. Like I I'm looking forward to hearing more episodes too. I think the conversations you guys are having are, are crucial to sales. So thank you. Yeah, you're Bye, welcome. Bob. Thanks for joining us.